Welcome to the East Career Podcast, brought to you from the East Careers and Trauma Committee. I am Jamie Coleman from Indiana University. In this session, we are pleased to have Dr. David Feliciano here with us to discuss what to know about your first job. Dr. Feliciano is the current Battersby Professor and Chief of the Division of General Surgery at Indiana University and the former Chief of Surgery at Grady Memorial Hospital for 19 years. His contributions to the field of general surgery are innumerable. He has over 500 articles, chapters, and books in press. He is co-editor of the textbook Trauma, now in its seventh edition. He is currently serving as the Vice President for the Southeastern Surgical Congress and has been President of several national and international surgical societies, including the Southwestern Surgical Congress, Western Trauma Association, the American Association for the Surgery of Trauma, and the Pan American Trauma Society. He's been an active member of EAST and has been both the Orion's and the Scott B. Frame lecturer. Dr. Feliciano, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. At this point in your career, you have obviously been in the position to interview and hire many surgeons for their first jobs. How does the new grad identify a great first job? What are the key job characteristics that a new grad should look for? The most important thing is for an individual to decide what they actually want to do first 10 years of their career. If they have a strong interest in critical care, that's fine. If they have an interest in having an elective surgical practice in addition to their trauma and critical care practice, that's fine. I think the problem for many young uh, individuals trained in trauma and critical care is that they allow themselves to be talked into a position which restricts their clinical activities in a hospital in which there are other specialists. Salaries are fairly consistent around the country at the assistant professor level. Call is reasonable in most level one trauma centers where there are enough faculty. Um, But I think the range of clinical activities that interest an individual and will keep them happy should be number one on their list. What is the one question that applicants should ask that don't? I think they don't ask enough about the other services that they might need as a young member of the faculty. To go into a department where you're sharing a secretary with uh, four or five other people is detrimental to the amount of uh, productivity you can have in terms of writing and producing uh, any other documents that are necessary. I think not having a nurse in the clinic, not having a PA or a nurse on the floor to help your service. One of the issues that I think many people don't understand about academics is, one, we carry a full clinical practice, and then even at a young age, many people take on administrative duties and or teaching duties, and then in order to get promoted in five years, they have to produce uh, publications and whatnot, so you need a lot of support around you. When I look at my early career in Houston at Baylor College of Medicine, You'll notice that almost all of my papers with a large volume of patients in them had a second author who was a PA or a nurse. And I simply could not have published as much as I did without those individuals doing a lot of the data collection for me. But yet I see many younger members of the faculty trying to do this almost in a vacuum by themselves. You cannot do that in academics and be successful. We're like a hydra. We have our heads in too many activities simultaneously, and without support, you're going to do all of them poorly. So find out what kind of support is actually available. For example, 
is there a statistician in the Department of Surgery, or do you have to contract out to the uh, local school of public health? Will the department pay for that kind of contract, right? If you need an article from 1880 in the German literature, who's going to pay for it? I mean, it's all those kind of little things that can help you succeed as an academician. I mean, I'm giving you some really sort of outrageous type requests, but often if you don't have the support around you, don't have people who are going to look at your work before it gets submitted, you're just not going to succeed. What advice would you give for an applicant in a community-type setting? Well, I think community-type settings are unique in the sense that you don't have all the academic pressures. On the other hand, there's often a very large clinical load. And those individuals have to understand that if they want to rise, for example, in professional societies, they're going to have to go beyond just taking coal in their hospital. If they're not going to publish, then they have to have some role, you know, regionally or statewide in helping trauma care in the, uh, that area get better. I was secretary of the AAST, and we would get many applicants from community surgeons and uh, applications, and we'd often argue about those individuals. And we finally wrote a set of criteria that they're not going to be involved with formal education or publications, and they have to show a service commitment to the trauma patient. You have to go above and beyond if you want to succeed in societies. For the million-dollar question, how does the new grad identify a bad first job? Are there any red flags that applicants should keep an eye out for while interviewing? Yeah, I think the biggest one is to talk to the people who are there and talk to people who have been there and have left. In truth, you know, you have a, a finite three to four decades as a professional, and you may not find a perfect job ever but the work that you have should make you happy every day. I spoke to a member of the trauma community at this meeting who was struggling with a academic position. And I asked him the question, are you happy when you go to work every day? I said, because you sure don't look happy. And I think to me, that's really been one of the critical things is that if you lose your enthusiasm because of the circumstances of your job, again, I think you'll do a bad job. In my long tenure at Grady, for all the problems that Grady brings to faculty, underfunding too many patients, difficult patients to deal with, an unappreciative Department of Surgery, an unappreciative medical school, there wasn't a day in 19 or actually 20 years that I didn't enjoy going to work because I was doing the things that I enjoyed, and that hospital gave me the opportunity to do that. And many people ask, why do you stay in public hospitals? I say, because I can do three to 400 cases a year. I can supervise some great residents and uh, fellows. I have clinical material to study and publish on. I have freedom of activity in the sense that I don't have to make RVUs every day. So I said, you, what I say to people is look for a position that fits the way you want to run your own career up to a point. I mean, you don't have full control. Most when selecting a surgeon to hire. In other words, could you please describe the perfect applicant? Uh, Well-trained and one who comes with a clear set of their own goals, again, over the first uh, five to ten years of their career. Do they have a sense what they want to be good at? I mean, when we 
We had a group at Grady. Uh, many people in the group had areas where they were allowed to develop without a lot of competition. They had areas of expertise. Uh, they had areas clinically that they studied that other people didn't study. And I always encourage people to find your niche in academics. You can't just be, everybody in the group can't be the vascular trauma expert. And everybody in the group can't be the super intensivist. If you want to be that and there isn't one there, that's fine. But if there's already somebody there, you have to probably find another niche or two or three. So I, what I'm looking for is somebody with a pretty clear-cut idea of what they want to accomplish, perhaps even a plan on how to get there, an intrinsic enthusiasm for the work that we do. And frankly, I look for people who are grounded and are not complainers. The world's full of complainers, but in academics, we don't really have time for that. And I look especially for people who, on the second visit or so, appear to show a real understanding of what the position entails. I mean, there were times when we interviewed candidates in my last position where, despite all the phone conversations ahead of time, the first words out of the candidate's mouth were, I want to do research three days a week. And I said, Didn't, did I not make this clear that we are a clinically-based group in a high-volume acute care hospital and that we need everyone in the group to participate in one of our components of care, elective general surgery, emergency general surgery, trauma, critical care, and or burns, and or pediatric surgery. It was very, I thought I had made it very clear, but people sort of sometimes don't make the right connection or don't hear on the phone. So I, I look for people who understand what the position is that they're being offered. It's incredible how naive some people are and how quickly they get unhappy and it's because they didn't ask the right questions. They were trying to appease the individual on the other side so they could get the job. And you really want to come in and ask pointed questions. Like if, you know, if you, are you planning on staying on as division chief? Are you planning on moving to a chair? What's the backup plan here when one of the partners gets sick or pregnant? I mean, all the things that are gonna affect your time and your enjoyment of the job. Ask questions. I have a whole sheet I give people who ask me for advice. You know, ask, are they going to pay your moving expenses? Do you want to take a sabbatical? When are you eligible? Right? You really want to find out as much as you can about the position. Then you can make an educated decision with your spouse or whatever on whether this is the right thing for you. My next question is, should you stay where you train? If you are going to stay, what would be key pieces of advice as young surgeons then transition from being a trainee to a partner? Uh, very good question. Uh, the disadvantage of staying is that you've already been part of the woodwork and the people who trained you will always look, look at you as if you're somebody they trained who's not equivalent to them, who certainly is not worthy in the near term to replace them. And, and that's a real issue, I think. Even though you're treated well, I don't think you're often perceived in the same light. The advantage of going elsewhere is that you bring new thoughts. Uh, they're often appreciated. Uh, you bring a new perspective for residents and trainee, other trainees. Uh, so there's good and bad on both sides. I, I, I was invited back to the place where I trained twice after I left to go to my first job. 
and I had this peculiar sense that I was always going to just be a boy there because they had all trained me and a lot of them were famous. And as much as I love the institution, I just didn't go back. What are the most common mistakes you see surgeons fresh out of training make when interviewing for, negotiating, and selecting their first job? Again, I think not having a clear-cut idea of what would make them happy. Sometimes there's a sense that they're desperate to, again, impress you as the interviewer, and they want to sell themselves to you. And, you know, when somebody says, we're going to have you take 12 nights call a month, the answer is not, oh, yes, sir, I'll be happy to do that so I can work with you. The answer is, well, that seems like about two or more times as many calls as other people who have finished fellowships are now taking. What's the reason for that? I mean, you want to be really realistic. This is not a dream world when you go for your first job. You put in all this time, and you really want to ask a lot of questions again and learn as much as you can and talk to the young faculty. And if you find, you know, that the new faculty a year or two later after they've arrived are, are very unhappy, you don't want to go there. It's just like you don't want to go to a residency where all the junior faculty are miserable. There's a message there. You don't have to be miserable in your training or as a young member of the faculty. You just have to find the right people in the right place. Dr. Feliciano, could you please tell me a little bit about your first job? How did you make your selection and what did you learn from the experience? because I'm probably going to break all the things I just told you, but I wrote a letter to uh, Dr. Maddox at the Bentob General Hospital in Houston very late in my chief year because I, I trained at the Mayo Clinic, and the presumption at the Mayo Clinic was that you would go into a high-flying general surgery career doing thyroids, parathyroids, Crohn's disease, and whatnot, all the things that we saw at the Mayo Clinic. It was very late again where I decided uh, over the objection of my spouse that I probably really wanted to do trauma because I had done trauma training already in Detroit. Dr. Maddox wrote a letter back to me and I had asked if I could be a fellow in trauma there because in those days trauma fellowships were, it was not an organized system. And he wrote back and said, well, we don't have a fellowship, but we notice that you're going to be fully trained by the time uh, you want to join us would you consider being a member of the faculty? Now, please remember that I didn't ask to be a member of the faculty because I knew nothing about trauma except for what I learned in my modest fellowship. And so it was a somewhat surprising letter, and uh, no one in my family, including my father, the famous surgeon, was uh, you know, enthusiastic about me moving to the, the hinterlands of Texas and working with those people down there. But it, it was a wonderful, wonderful position because... Since it was so unstructured, I had a lot of freedom to find my way and to find the kind of things that I would be uh, able to develop in academically. But it was, it was serendipity, without question. Taking the 30,000-foot view, what is the main message or piece of advice that you would like to give our audience today? I think it's really important to be happy. You know, I'm near, quite near the end of my career. I'm much, much older now, and I'm having re trouble retiring because I really like what I do. I could have retired years ago, but I see no purpose in retiring because I can still teach, I can still operate, I can still mentor, I can still write, I can do all the things I did from day one of my career. So the key is I meet so many people 
young faculty who ask for career advice. And when you really speak to them, there's a lot of misery there. And I don't completely understand it. I do think you should aim for positions that, again, fit your needs. I think if there are problems with your first position, I think you should try and talk them out with a person who hired you or even a distant mentor and try and make them right. And if you still can't get those things fixed, I think you should move on. But you need to be really, really careful to make sure the problem is not you. There are clearly people who have people problems. There are people who aren't very good taking messages from authority figures. There are people who have a perception they're so special they shouldn't take as much call as the rest of the team. And you want to be really realistic. This is a, a team project. I mean, all the career stuff is about you, but once you're in the job, it's working with others and you have to make sure you fit in and do your part, but be happy. This is a really short ride. 30 or 40 years seems like a long time. Let me tell you from personal experience, it goes like a flash. Do it right. Going back and reviewing your career, what is the one thing you would go back and change? I think uh, I had, I broke some of my own rules when I took one of the academic positions in my career. I mean, the people were wonderful, the city was wonderful, the school was prestigious, and the job was a bad fit for me personally because of the kind of things that I was interested in academically. And on the other hand, it was a wonderful learning experience because I had never been in private practice before. I knew nothing about billing. I knew nothing about the competition for cases in private practice. So I don't look on it at all as wasted time. I just know that if I had probably investigated further, I would probably not have made that kind of move. I mean, the point is, this is not a cancer. If, if your position, wherever you are, doesn't work out, You're, we're all highly intelligent, highly educated, incredibly well-trained, and there's a position there for good people. It's just the pain of moving. Uh, the first time I moved academically, it took me two years to adapt. The second time I moved, it took me less than a year. I learned a lot the first time. I was much more open to meeting everyone as quickly as possible. Um, you get better at a lot of this stuff over time. And if you make mistakes in your career, as long as they don't involve hurting patients, you just kind of put a note in your head let me not do this again and not waste this kind of time because, again, this, this really is a very finite period of time in a, in a life to be able to do the good things we do in academic surgery. I would like to thank you, Dr. Feliciano, for taking time to speak with us today. I am Jamie Coleman, and I hope you enjoyed the program. When you find a moment of time, please visit the EAST website at www.east.org for more EAST Career podcasts and other valuable information.